Welcome to Results May Vary. This is a podcast to help you design your life. Tracy and I have worked in the field of design and innovation for over 17 years between us. We've helped sustain a food revolution for Jamie Oliver, redesigned the way LA County votes. We've even engaged the world's most creative minds in science by turning their genes into music at the TED conference. Throughout our careers, we've always wondered, what if we took this same creative problem-solving process we've used to help these organizations solve their challenges, but applied it directly to people's lives? Would it work? Would anyone listen to us? And maybe even scarier, what would happen if they did? Results May Vary is a thoughtful experiment designed by Tracy and I to see just what happens when you set out to intentionally design your life. episode, healthcare designer and founder of Prescribed Design, Aaron Scalar, talked to us about creating a collaborative network of healthcare experts and design professionals to reimagine medical products and services and create healthcare experiences that are useful, usable, delightful, and impactful for all. Today, we introduce you to designer Jenny Jin, whose motto is always be learning. A graduate of Stanford and MIT, she recently worked at the Alicia Foundation, founded by world-renowned chef of El Bulli, Farhan Adria, to promote healthy eating for everyone. Jenny is an entrepreneurial learner and doer, and is here to inspire us with her sense of optimism and roll-up-your-sleeves, kick-open-your-own-door attitude. Living up to her motto, we recently caught up with Jenny as she was preparing to lead a class at MIT's Edgerton Center for Experiential Learning to teach undergrads how to apply design thinking to their lives. I'm working on well-being and I want to do a comparative analysis and essentially I just want to live in Spain for a while because I think that the people eat and live in a really holistic way that I don't see here in the U.S. as much. Yeah. And I want to work with a food company that actually is like mindfully doing this. And she was like, you know, I think Ferran Adria, the chef, do you know him? I was like, yes. He has this food foundation that combines health and food and tries to be able to innovate on the two together. I was like, shut up trying to see if they would be willing for you to work with them the summer I was like please that would be absolutely fantastic and so MIT like was able to make the connection fund me to go I thought I would just only have the opportunity to work on the business side they invited me to work in the kitchen half time because one I was personally interested and asked to even though I have no qualifications as a professional chef I felt like it did help me to understand their operations and be able to help them with their strategy and growth component of it I worked on some pretty cool hands-on project, like I helped going back to healthcare, like the elderly have trouble swallowing as they get older, gastronomy techniques to experiment and create new textures for food, still eat the food that they love, but with different textures that allow them to actually be able to swallow. That's amazing. I just was listening to, is it Atul Gawande's Being Mortal? He was sharing an anecdote about as you get older, I guess like your head goes back when you're eating that increases your likelihood of choking. And I had no idea. So I love that you guys were actually working on that to try and solve that for people. Absolutely. And Tracy, guess what? They use design thinking and they don't call it that. Basically, the pastry chef from El who was there for 20 years and is a rock star at creating food, he is 
super creative and curious. So he went with a dietitian and the two of them just went to the hospital and used like all the tools of observing be able to interview patients and their parents or their children, interviewing their doctors and the people who serve the food at the hospitals and what the processes are and what people are doing. And then together, like the dietitian offers her perspective on the healthcare side and the chef looks at his perspective from the creative and just trying to get people to eat really delicious food that they love side. Alongside food, like anthropologists who know about the politics and the habits of how people eat. And they together just like go from brainstorming to testing and creating a bunch of things for people to try. And that's like this process that keeps being refined over months and then super fast and rapid. And then within a couple months, they are just able to come up with something. Did you see that documentary that they did on Obuli? No, I didn't. I feel like they've gotten a lot of press lately. Do you know which one this was called? I don't remember, but it was basically shadowing them for a year and showing how they take off three or four, or maybe it's even six months for the year. I mean, this was when Obuli was still open, obviously. Yeah, they would just experiment. They would go get inspired by other cuisines and just out in the world and in nature. And they had all these notebooks full of ideas. And then all of the chefs would test these things over and over again. They kept the notebook, which was all of their experiments, the things that had worked well and had failed. And they would try each other's creations and give feedback. And you're right, it is actually very similar to the design thinking process, especially around experimentation and prototyping. And then they were basically just setting it all up for that year's menu. Like it would be just for that one year. And so say it was six months that they were experimenting and then it was six months that they were serving. And even while they had that six months of serving, they were still experimenting and pushing things forward. But they'd really crafted what they wanted the experience to be. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do after IDEO, that was in my mind was sort of like taking things to the field or talking to working with clients and getting them ramped up on what the process was and then taking six months time off to sort of synthesize it all and then prototype what the next series of client collaborations could look like. I just love that process of really taking time to reflect and also taking time to put something out in the world that you've really considered thoroughly. That's exactly right, was how I would describe the culture add on to that I felt like they really imbued it you know how people talk and sometimes like they don't actually like showcase in their everyday work but when I was there again I was very green in the kitchen and anytime they asked me to do something I was like I don't really know how they first invested time in teaching me but two they were like if you mess up just don't worry about it start over judgment of how well you're doing something they know that it just takes practice absolutely also I would love to switch gears and hear about the class and kind of everything that you've been doing at MIT and the work that you're trying to do to bring design thinking to people's lives. So I guess I can start with myself. I just graduated from the MIT's Sloan program, which is their MBA program this past June. So I had the pleasure to be a grad student at MIT for the last two years. I went to Stanford for my undergrad. And I think the culture on the campus of MIT is as wonderful as Stanford's, but it's very different. The first thing that I heard when I got to the MIT campus was that there is a strong philosophy of drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> I didn't hear about it until I got to MIT. I mean, it's basically this like imagery that it's a really strong current of things that they're going to throw at you. And the part of the learning experience is figuring out how you're going to manage what you can handle, what you want to do, what you don't, or else you're just going to drown it. Such an interesting approach to how they structure academic life for both undergrads and for the grad students. And I have to say that it was definitely exactly that. That sounds overwhelming. How do you even begin to manage that? 
in the beginning, I didn't manage it very well, to be very honest with you. And when I talked to my classmates within my MBA program, and then beyond that, when I made friends with like other grad students and undergrads, it always felt like it was this really steep learning curve where we were incredibly stressed out by it. All of us came to different ways to be able to cope with it or to be able to redesign our lives in a way that felt like it was manageable. One of the key takeaways I hear a lot is that students say that they get pushed beyond the boundaries, what they can handle, and then it helps them to discover where their boundaries are. And then when they survive and when they do well, they really wear this badge of honor and have a huge immense amount of confidence and pride that they can tackle anything else beyond MIT. I had conducted design research around the topic of well-being at MIT. I thought about this a little bit more, like backed up. I was like, dude, that's actually a lot of pressure and a lot of risks beyond your boundaries. And only when you achieve something, we feel successful, do you feel like you came out of it and you got something from it. The question for me that I was really curious about was, what happens if we actually create an environment and like a culture where students could still do this? They could still push the boundaries of what they think is possible and discover who they are along the process, but without this real risk and like this lack of support. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the tenets I feel like of design thinking is to try and start small and, and take manageable risks so that you're not at risk of falling on your face and completely failing. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about pulling from inspirations from different places, I had used to work at Google as my first job out of college. And at Google, we always talked about different terminologies that were really useful to me. Like one was sandbox, the idea that before you put something out in the wild or in the real world, you test it in a smaller environment first, one that felt safer and was more controlled, and which really allowed you to be able to, you know, flex like your muscles before you felt like you had to deal with all of the possible risks out there. Did you say sandbox, like a little play space? Yeah, like a little play space. I love that association too, absolutely. Be able to play rather than think of it as like performance or work, just like play. Yeah. That became the anchor for we're trying to design for. We wanted to see if we can create a true sandbox at MIT where people come to MIT from high school and the sanctuaries and the roles of their homes. And as part of the curriculum, that they're offered at MIT is like a true sandbox to be able to play and experiment and see what they can learn along the way. Yeah, so you came to MIT after you did undergrad at Stanford. I can't even imagine the overwhelm that you would feel coming from high school to MIT and drinking from that fire hose. Yeah, so one of the biggest supporters for the class currently is the Dean of Undergraduate Advising. And her primary students that she works with are freshmen. And she says that there is a huge kind of range of students, ones who come in very like ready to take in this environment and go with it. And then people who really struggle with it. And it's a design challenge for them as well, how to create an experience for that entire range of... Yeah, because my philosophy would be that just because you enter MIT and kind of can't jump in right away and go with the flow doesn't mean that you don't have the potential to be amazing at what you do. And you already have overcome so many challenges and persevered to get there in the first place. Is that a similar mentality or are people kind of like cut bait if people don't get it within, you know, the first semester? No, I think there's a deep sense of personalization. A few, so we had interviewed several students. This was a design project last spring where we came in with just curiosity. We were like just very curious about what well-being in a happy campus would look like. And we interviewed Natalie over 20 undergrads. We also interviewed grad students in the MIT community of faculty and admin and dean. And going back to the undergrads that we interviewed, 
what was really interesting, one of the key things that we heard over again was that students said, oh, it's not about the workload and it's not about the professors being really hard on me. I'm actually harder on myself than like anyone else. Sometimes when they do hit like a roadblock, there's a lot of like, rather than taking the data and seeing how to make it useful to improve, there is a lot of feeling very personalized about how it speaks to you as a person. I could imagine that. I would think that the types of folks who go to MIT have already been hard on themselves for most of their lives to get to where they are. And I wonder, and that question has just made me think, do you think that that's necessary in order to succeed in such a way or go to such a place that that trait is necessary? One of the things that I learned in one of my classes I took at Sloan, which was incredibly transformational for me, was improv. I had never taken improv in the past because I'm terrified of like public performance. Class was really great because they lured me in by saying, look, this class is going to teach you about leadership skills and it's going to do it in a very trusting way because it's going to be a very small group of people. You don't have to do anything they're not comfortable with. One of the role-playing activities that we did was playing out what we call the inner critic, the inner editor, and the inner champion, where in all those different roles, you would say, what would be going through your head? Like, I would be nervous about public speaking. I'm about to prep for it. Like, my inner critic would say, you know what? If you've failed this, it's just going to be terrible. You are just never going to be good at this. Whereas the inner kind of editor is something where they'll say, look, you do need to project yourself. You do want to be authentic. You do want to share because these are things that will align with your goals. I think that is like the critical voice that we want to hear in our head where it's using the critical skills of analysis without being self-critical and keeps you from being preoccupied and distracted when you're trying to really work on your goals. Obviously, like the champion in you is going to say, you can do it. Like, and even if you don't, that's okay. This does not speak anything about yourself. Like inner champion is something that people talk about a lot as that's what we should all have. But I think people overlook the role of the editor. I think that people who are really high achieving have that as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of it kind of talked about in that way. I've only heard the two, the critic and the champion. Yeah, so improv, like it was transformation. (laughs) (laughs) Highly recommend it to anyone. Okay, so all of this curiosity and exploration around well-being Mm -hmm. at MIT has turned into something very tangible now. And do you want to talk about what that is? Basically, we uh, came up with idea for creating a sandbox. And we didn't really know what shape that would take at MIT. We thought it could be a club. This could be uh, after-school workshops. It could be something that we do over, you know, spring break. Uh, it could be like a lot of things. And so then we thought about what's our target personas that we really want to reach. And we wanted it to be like freshmen and sophomore, primarily at MIT. So with that in mind, we just started to interview more freshmen and sophomores about their daily lives and their schedules to make sure that we wouldn't create anything that would burden them or make it hard for them to access. And so it evolved into a full semester class. It's going to be a hands-on lab where for two hours of the week, students come to the class and they're just going to be taught like basic tools and design thinking, as well as improv mindfulness to really be able to use these tools to start to just experiment on the things that matter the most in their lives. And then from those experiences, uh, we expect them to start to learn things and to start to be interested in topics that they're able to air out with a group of fellow students. Why did you choose freshmen, sophomores? That was a really interesting age group because I think that when students have experienced a major change in their lives, that's when they're the most susceptible and the most ready to think about what it means and to be thoughtful about it. 
that was the hypothesis that we had. And we tested this with a few advisors who worked a lot in human behavior and psychology. And they also thought that that was a really interesting test group. We started to talk to students and it kind of backed us up and that like a lot of freshmen, a lot of sophomores said, look, we came to MIT and we were told we're going to go out there and change the world. I think that's really exciting. I love and embrace that challenge. How do I go about doing that with my workload? I'm ready to think about it and act about it, but I don't see like a lot of resources. Oh, that's amazing. Even though I'm just thinking back to my own college experience, I don't think I would have thought about, oh, I'm here to change the world. I would probably have been thinking about it as, what's my major? What do I want to do for a career? I love that there's a broader perspective about why you're going to college in the first place. Yeah, I think that I hear the same concerns about majors and so forth. But it was really like wonderful and surprising to me to hear that this emphasis on impact, what can I do that will actually create impact, is a really sticky topic. And people are both intimidated by it, curious about it don't really know how to be able to negotiate about doing it. And I think that that's like the biggest draw of the class is that we're telling people, look, we're going to tackle those questions. We won't be diving into that big question from the beginning, but over the process of the semester, I think that you'll have more clarity and you'll have a space to be able to explore it. It's interesting. I went to go see Neil deGrasse Tyson speak earlier this week, and he was talking about being in Silicon Valley doing this talk or in San Francisco somebody had gotten up to ask him a question and he's like, you're here with all these engineers. What do you think we should be doing to help impact the world? And Neil was basically like, start working on problems that matter. He's like, it's not about the next app, what the next thing is that you can put on your phone to do something for you. And I also had just recently read an article where they were talking about Silicon Valley kind of being focused on creating solutions for things that your mom can do for you or used to do for you. So you're trying to solve for take over what mom used to do and instead maybe focus on things that might make your mom proud. I think that in my own career, I sort of came to that realization too, is once you have this skill set that allows you to know how to tackle an insurmountable seeming challenge, you feel compelled to do that. And so many times we hear people talk about how they want to do something good. They want to help maybe with Syrian refugees or with their local homeless population or so many different challenges in the world and not knowing the first steps to take. And so this skill set, I feel like is incredibly valuable because you don't have to know what the outcome is in order to know which first steps to take. Absolutely. And that goes back to design thinking, which I think is a wonderful practice where it really makes you feel very comfortable not knowing what the outcomes are if you can just look at what the processes that you can take to get there. What should they expect coming into class on this first day? What are you telling them they're doing? Just to go back to what we were just talking before about mm -hmm. creating huge impact in the world, one of the biggest things that I know I'm always forgetting is that in order to create impact outwardly, like the first thing is to prioritize and to create impact with yourself. Essentially, like the target goal of the class is to say, how do I use the same curiosity and the same tools of critical analysis and the same hard work and rigor, like the passion that I put all these like other challenges and problems out there that I'm tackling and apply that to myself. And the same amount of compassion that I put towards helping others solve their problems, I can put towards myself too. And so the first day of class, we're going to orient towards that and say, what's going on with yourself? How much do you know about the problems in your own life? What are the things you know about it? And what are the gaps of information that you don't know about it? 
And how can we really dig into that with this like same principles of curiosity? And so the language that you're using around this in class, I'm curious because I feel like there's two worlds that I live in. One is talking about design thinking for change within organizations. And then there's design thinking for people's lives. And I don't necessarily think that the term design thinking is very attractive to people necessarily. So is there any way that you're talking about that sort of makes it more personalized? Or are you trying to make that connection so that they see the overlap? Uh, you know, what's interesting at MIT is that unlike the West Coast, design thinking is fairly uh, popular and new here, has just recently started to really take traction. And a lot of people are really curious about things that they can learn from. There was a lot of ways that we could have talked about the class. I think that design thinking has like the same kind of universal principles as say mindfulness as for instance, like improv and like leadership. We wanted to call out the 12 design thinking for the undergrads because going back to your point, what was one of the things that has been preoccupying them is what major and what internship that they're going to get after the first year. A lot of the companies that MIT plus students are really interested in are tech companies and design companies. And so the idea is that not only are these tools that they're learning going to be useful for them to draw on when they're exploring topics that are important to them personally, but that these are also like tools that will be useful to them as they enter like companies like Google and like IDEO and like Salesforce and so forth that really do like integrate these practices into like their everyday product development. That's pretty powerful and enticing. Yeah, so we were really designing for engagement, and we're just like, how do we do this? How do we get people to come? And so I think that that was just like a natural way. It sounds similar to how people got you interested in taking the improv class by talking about it as a leadership skill builder. Absolutely. Just creating these bridges of what might be really challenging to you, but also really like speaks out as very useful to you. Definitely. Are there certain activities or experiences in particular that you're excited to take students through? We're really excited to, for instance, have students start designing from the get-go small design projects that will be addressing some of the problems or the challenges that they really want to work on. And from day one, starting to form small groups where they start practicing need finding and then like designing the projects and starting to deploy in their own lives. But then the interesting thing about personal challenges is that usually we work on it in like a vacuum. We go home and we're like, I really want to work on weight loss. I might tell a few people about it, but I won't like keep them up, kind of up to date on my progress until I see like good enough. And then I'll share it with like my entire network or my support base. What we're asking students to do is that every week track what happened, not only in that design goal that they want, what surprised them, what went well, what didn't go well, what happened to the processes and the environment to be very kind of rigorous about it. And then in their small group to do a debrief, like a postmortem. And then for the small group to like ask them supporting questions and coach them through it to also review how they're going to iterate the next week. We want students to sustain this kind of refinement and like iteration of this design project over six or seven weeks. I'm really excited to see how students not only go through this process with their project and what comes out of it. I'm also curious to see how their mindset about sharing in public before something is like fully baked, how they react to that, how they feel about that by the end of the semester. Yeah, I would imagine that would be intimidating. I think it's going to be really intimidating. It's definitely going to be like a learning curve. We should bake in time for people to air out how they feel about it in the classroom as they're doing it rather than just like 
having them go. And it sounds like what is part of a smart design for this class is not only you made it a class versus a club, so students are committing a certain amount of time, and they're also getting rewarded for it by getting a grade and having it impact their GPA and all those great things, but also that the class, the model of having small groups for idea generation, but also accountability and emotional support, it aligns with a lot of the things that we've been talking to previous guests about, which is having a team when you're designing for yourself. And whether that's friends or some mentors or experts that you really trust, I think that that's a really successful way to go about it as far as a class too. I think that the community aspect was what we hoped to be able to build out. It's something that MIT, I think that people are extraordinarily collaborative but oftentimes in our labs, when we run scientific experiments, we're very used to doing it on our own. And to be able to straddle that balance between working on something that's very personal to you, but be able to see what happens when you're able to share with a group of students and how they could challenge your perspective and add their own to the richness of it. I'd be really, that's one of like the key data points that we want to learn from the class. So I know that we want to check back with you once the class is over and sort of have our own debrief. And I wonder if you wanted to state what your aspirations for the class are, and maybe some thoughts that you have on what some of the challenges will be for students. Yeah, designing for metrics is one of the key uh, challenges that I've had in like setting up the course. So currently, we have a small team of people who are going to be teaching the course, and we realize that once a class gets started, we might become so focused with teaching that tracking is not going to be as much of a priority. But really, when we started out this class, the idea was that this is an idea, and we don't know what's going to come out of the idea until we actually test it. And so, in all very similar to what we want to teach, the class itself is a prototype, and we want to learn from it. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that we really want to learn from it that we've put on paper one, trust. We're going to do a baseline survey with students about what they think about trust in a circle of people that they just met. Build that trust. And like every week, we'll check in with them on how they feel about the trust level of like the community of the class. Two is going to be about the projects that like the students conduct. It's something that they really feel like gives them the freedom to be able to flex like the muscles, to be able to try and do they feel like they have enough support as they're going through the process. And so that'll be probably also qualitative in trying to understand what they feel is support, how they define it, and do they feel like they've met that bare threshold in receiving it every week. And then finally, we're really interested in what students choose to attend this class and to engage with the class to really learn from this experience. Like, what are the types of classes that MIT has opportunity to offer as an offering yet? And to be able to translate this insight back to MIT and see, like, what more we can be able to offer to, like, students going forward. Is this a part of an overall vision that you have working at MIT? Or what's sort of your future this moment, what do you envision your future to look like? I definitely feel an emotional argument to be able to do this class at MIT since I was like a student here myself, and I'm a huge fan of MIT. I also recognize that the challenge, the design challenge, and the content of the class is, it's very universal to freshmen and sophomore in colleges everywhere. And so that's something that we're definitely keeping in the back of our heads and thinking about in terms of impact how to be able to document our journey so that maybe people who feel that there is a similar design challenge at their campus will be able to use this if they want to, and how we are able to share that knowledge across the board. 
Yeah, that's amazing. I know. I feel like there's a small but growing group of people who are thinking about and experimenting within this space of applying it to their lives and and having tools and resources, things that are very practical and tangible will be useful going forward for sure. I have felt really blessed over the last three months by feeling I have found an ecosystem of people doing this within MIT, as well as the ecosystem of people who are trying to innovate on this outside of MIT. So it's great to be able to share knowledge with a lot of different people who are doing it at different scales for K-12, all the way to people who are doing it for people who are already professionals. So I wonder if for folks who are listening to the podcast and they're like, this all sounds great. I'm not going to go to MIT and I'm maybe not even college at the moment anymore. What are some practical steps that you would suggest for them to take? That's a great question. I'm actually thinking about my own personal journey when I feel like I started to essentially try to design my life as well. I feel like for me, it was a process over time just sort of starting with something that you want to change and then who are other people out in the world doing this or who are experts in this and gathering information or like you were talking a lot about curiosity, just sort of being open to the why behind why you feel a certain way about a challenge or what are some potential opportunities for looking at it differently. And I didn't know, we were talking to Ella Benur, and she had, she calls it the compass, which I think you guys have been working together, right? Yeah, absolutely. I know the compass model well. I think it's a really great tool for anyone to be able to apply that to their own lives. And so I didn't know if there was like a framework or anything that you were kind of going into the class with that you felt like, oh, here's a good grounding framework or first step for people to take. I do really believe in content and tools to be able to allow for anyone who's just starting out with a new topic to feel very comfortable with it. I feel like using Ella's compass um, model would be a great way to start to frame some of the questions that anyone can have. For me, I feel like one of the biggest things that happened in my life was actually to think about taking tiny experiments for myself without any pressure, just to see what will happen to say, I don't care what the outcome is, let me try something. So one example of this is, I think two years ago, I had heard someone use this terminology saying below the neck thinking. And they had used it in a different context. But I really love that phrase, below the neck thinking. The next day when I woke up and I was feeling for some reason like a little bit tired that day. And there was like a lot of things I knew that I wanted to take care of in terms of schoolwork, but just felt really tired. And I told myself and actually announced this publicly on Facebook to give myself a little more accountability too. I said, look guys, today I'm just going to try something called below the neck thinking where I'm going to not pay attention to anything above my neck. Anything my mind is telling me to do, I'm just not going to pay attention to it. He thought that passes through my mind. I'm not going to pay attention to it. I'll let it happen. I'll allow it to pass. Really seek to hear what my arms, my chest, my heart, my legs and so forth is telling me to do and go with it. Wow. I've never heard of that before. (laughs) It was kind of like, kind of out of the blue. I didn't know why I chose to do this, but I decided to go with it. Telling everyone on Facebook really kind of just nailed my affirmation to do it. And then that day I started to do it and it was just really, really interesting to experience what was going through my body as I was happening and how it affected my day and my actions. 
And then I didn't know what was going to come out of it. Actually, some really positive, interesting things came out of it as well. At the end of the day, I think the biggest takeaway was I looked around. I was like, you know what? The world of my life did not come crashing down just because I stopped listening to my head for the day. And that just like really interesting experiment to run on myself and to see what would happen. Yeah. What are some of the things that you ended up doing that you wouldn't have done if you're just listening to your chattery brain? For instance, I think that there was a certain part of the day, I think it was 11 a.m. and had been up for a couple hours. And my, I think that my hips were telling me, you know, I'm kind of tired. I just want to go back into bed. Mm-hmm. So I did. I went back to bed and I took a half hour nap, didn't set an alarm. I just woke up when I felt like. It was wonderful. And it was actually incredibly like a great kickstart to doing the next thing I wanted to do. And I think oftentimes my brain feels like it's a battle with the rest of my body where it pushes itself rather than what listens to the rest of the body. And that was an interesting insight for me to learn as well. Like when to feel this relationship and to understand what was going on. I mean, you're just kind of opening my eyes because I don't think that I've ever shut my brain off and let my body lead things. I mean, now when you're saying it, I'm like, that that sounds really practical and I can relate to it. I've never done it. I'm going to try that. Yeah, try it. These tiny experiments I encourage people to do. I don't really have a template for what types of experiments to run, but I just think anything that's interesting or curious that you've always wanted to try, I don't see anything stopping anyone from doing it if you allow yourself permission to do it. If you really want one rule of thumb, I think the Facebook thing, at least for me, worked in the social and public aspect and that I told someone else beyond myself, so it gave me both pressure as well as a meaning behind it. And I also told everyone, I was like, look, if I had an appointment with you and I decided to not follow through on it today, I hope you can you know, be able to forgive me. I really responded positively to that as well. So I think that the social aspect of it really did matter. Yeah, what were some of the responses that you got from people? I got a lot of people who were very curious to see where the day would take. I also got a few people who I was supposed to have meetings with that day that said, go for it. This sounds great. You don't know until you say something like that to gauge what people's reactions are. And if they had said, no, I still would like to meet with you, you actually realize that's okay too. It's okay to just at least put it out there and see people's feedback rather than worry and do the work for them to wonder where their feedback is. So true. I feel like, yeah, the chattery brain, it's like, that's the squeaky wheel. It's always getting the attention and it's not necessarily telling you the truth. If you're not engaging other people in the conversation and you're just having it in your own head, you'll never know what other people think and it'll probably surprise you. Absolutely. All right. This was fantastic. I love hearing about this class. I am so jealous. I don't get to take it. (laughs) We're super excited to check back in with you then later once it's done and maybe even talk to a student or two and hear about their experience as well. I think that that would be such a great idea. I would love to be able to share what happens, what came out of the class, what went well, what didn't go well, what surprised us. And also to invite students who want to be able to share about their experiences to do that as well. I think that that would be so great. This is actually one of the, it's actually just, it rings so true with the class, which is to learn publicly and to err on just doing and trying and then see what comes out of it. So I think that would be a great opportunity. Perfect. Well, thanks, Jenny. I can't wait to hear what's going on. And we really appreciate you being on the show. It's such a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So there were three mindsets and there was the editor, 
there was the uh, critic, critic, right? Yeah. And then it was the, uh, it was the, did you guys call it a cheerleader? It was the oh, encourager. Yeah, right. And everyone talks about always wanting the encourager, yeah. more of the encourager. But it was the editor that was really, really ended up being super valuable in the trifecta. Why did you think that the editor was such an interesting addition? I thought that the cheerleader almost kind of superficially turned you on, even yeah. when you kind of know maybe that's not what you need. And so the editor allows you to translate from the one that's kind of beating you up is pretty useless. The editor is sort of the most productive of the three. So it's like you can look to the right and there's a cheerleader. You can look to the left and there's someone being like, you're not going fast enough. What's your problem? And the editor is kind of like, here's actually how we're going to handle this. These guys are ridiculous. They figure out what's important. And Jenny talked about doing this in a really uh, malleable state, freshmen and sophomores at MIT, yeah, being very open and receptive for making adjustments and, and thinking about their life in that way. I mean, in behavior change in general, it's like finding points where people are making transitions already when they're kind of letting their habits fall away are easier times to graft those new behaviors on. They're in a more open mindset. So it's like if you're having a baby, and you're going to suddenly be shopping at different stores and yeah. your values will be different. Like you're interested in certain things and companies know that, yes. right? Because they try to take advantage of those periods of time. Yes. It's like, oh, you're going to have a baby. Well, now all these companies come out of the woodwork to market to you. Sure. But we don't realize that. We don't. And the biggest thing, and I think this resonated with you as I heard you guys talking through the interview, is that MIT takes this fire hose approach, which mm -hmm. is basically we're going to break people. We're going to take them too far. Yeah. And they're going to figure out how to curate and decide what they want to work on, which felt, I'm sure, as all of our listeners agree, it's like so relevant right now. It's, yeah. As she was describing, it's like, I feel like many people are on their break point right now. It's like they're living this MIT thing live. They're drinking from the fire hose and they need to prioritize the thing that they most care about. I just thought that was a really interesting approach for bright people, obviously, coming into MIT is let's try to break them. And... <laughs> See if they can figure out how to prioritize in order to be effective. It's so relevant for so many of our jobs and so much of our managing your household and raising your kids is how do you prioritize? Part of me thinks that that sounds horrible. Just all of this coming at you. And then if you can't figure it out, the shame that you have, especially if you're somebody bright who's going to MIT and then you fail. You can't prioritize. You can't make your way in that environment. That's something that's going to scar you for life. But then the other part of me is like the times I've felt most happy about something I've done is when I've pushed myself or been pushed and made my way through. Yeah. So it's like the challenge itself is what made it something to look back on fondly. Yeah. I think Gretchen Rubin, she does that like talks a lot about happiness, but she says, happiness doesn't always feel good at the time and I totally relate to that yeah you can be going through something and being like I know in the future I'm going to be happy I did this but right now it sucks I'm sure you would know a lot about that yeah I think you can find little kind of spots of happiness if there was no positive reinforcement along the way I really don't think many of us would do the things that we do at yeah all. but yeah it's it's like a little bit of suffering a little bit of your 100 mile bike ride up a mountain yeah, but I would you. say that interstitial steps, there's definitely a positive reward of going out there, exercising hard, and then getting all the endorphins or what that means. Like, yeah. it's not that there's no feedback that's positive. So, what are some of the moments during that experience that are 
happy? What drives you to continue? Seeing your friends, the challenge, the type A stuff that's like, you did that hill at the third fastest time that you've ever done that hill. And like, I did? Oh, neat. Cool. I'm going to try to do it the second fastest next time. Yeah. So I just think there's an achievement variable. Uh-huh. But it's also just I was hammering along with this group. And I just turned right. Like, I just abandoned the group and started riding up this other road. <laughs> and it was beautiful. We've had a lot of rain in California. It just looked, everything was so green. And climbing up this road pretty long climb and just I didn't go fast I just went up the road and I was like this is beautiful yeah. and I've noticed on that ride every Saturday now I keep taking that right hand turn I just keep going up that road and yes I've gone up it faster and now I regroup and it's like now there's a little challenge in there uh-huh. but it's beautiful up there and I find like this is way more nature connected and more interesting than what I would normally do what so compelled it's a nice you to take the right in the first place? Being exhausted, going, doing the same thing week after week with the same group. And I think that there's something maybe to learn from that, too. It's just yeah. this, like, the constant achiever would be like, no, this is what you did last year. Keep doing that. It's like, right. no, we need a new plan. Right. It's a break point. That's yeah. right. Here's yeah. a break point. The design's expired. That's a really good point, too, is the old designs don't often work. Right. So what you've always done won't always be the same thing it's like now i'm doing that on an older body or now i'm doing that mm. with a different group or now i'm doing that in a new state or now i'm doing that with a kid these need new designs <laughs> so the design's never done as you and i've talked about right but the the other part with jenny was that i was surprised what i expected her to say was so everyone comes in and they get fire hose right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a hazing effect yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah and you asked her well how did you figure it out and she talked to other people and they were struggling too and she was struggling and then I thought she was going to come back and say you finally get given the formula and there's Mm -hmm. like the MIT way and they finally share with you like here's how you do it right and it wasn't that at all she said basically I figured out my own I'm left to find out my version of this which is actually far more inspiring I think because it assumes Mm -hmm. that the truth which is we're all really different so this class that she's got going which i can't wait to talk to her more about as the class goes on is how do people come up with their own frameworks and like their own processes like even if it's the anti-process or whatever they cope however they cope yeah and then how does that change because as you go into the world your cool freshman mit framework may not work when you have the real job and you have a family and i mean i would hope it doesn't because (laughs) that's really boring implies (laughs) that you haven't really grown much yeah i mean i think we're always everybody is always seeking the answer you know there's a, a medium i always get they send a digest to my inbox and it's like 10 things yes <laughs> yeah. be more productive yeah. like what highly productive people do what it, it's just like oh my god we all just want the answer so we can go apply it and be done with all of it that is i think we even get teased with that and we had it on our own podcast when we interviewed story right here's a guy that's pretty much figured how all of life works out and <laughs> yeah. then has just been reapplying it. It's like, oh, surgery, that's easy framework. Right. Oh, you want to go to outer space? I can do that. I know how to do it. So you do crave that sort of story level insight. Like, ooh, he's got the code that all of us are seeking. Yeah, and I guess I think, like, that's kind of, to me, what design thinking is, a way to do anything. That's true. 
like I have been talking about it recently as like a way to creatively and consistently solve seemingly impossible challenges. Yes. It's consistent and creative and both of those things have to work together. Because yes. if it's consistent but not creative, then you know, it's just a production line, right? Just yeah. like making the same things over and over again, which is what I think we tend to think the answer is, but we fail to realize like the creative part. And usually creativity is like this muse that alights upon your shoulder and yeah. visits you when you're worthy and is yeah. easily scared. But it's not. Design thinking kind of proves that it's a muscle, that it's a mindset that you can apply over and over again. I think that's why I was so drawn to it. Me too. And yet, I think most people hear process and they think, oh, boy, here we go again. Here's yeah. another one of those, another. like, the top five ways to figure out all of life. But in it lies... I think it's very general process. Like, it's a, there is sort of a way, but you don't even have to do it in the right order. No. There's so many interpretations of this same thing. It's as broad as saying, here is the outdoors. Go do whatever you want with it. You yeah. Know, it's kind of like, it's as broad as that. It's, oh, and realizing that everybody talks about it differently. You can have five steps, you can have six. There's no <laughs> common language. Part of that is because... You want a 25-step design process? I'll give you 25 Make steps. it happen. <laughs> exactly. But it's because it's based on what people need, right? right? If you're in the education space, you talk about it differently than if you're in you know, a traditional business space or yes. social impact space. Or I've been talking about it's like get inspired go out and see what's happening in the world and be curious then it's get focused what is it that you're trying to solve now that you have all this information and inspiration and then get scrappy which is all the like brainstorming prototyping coming up with experiments and then get smarter which is iterating trying to figure out how it works and then realizing that you might have to iterate again in six months or in a week and the reason why I was breaking it down like that was I was trying to figure out how do I succinctly talk about this with people and your medium article was great by the way oh thank people you people still talk about that just the clarity I needed to do that for myself to understand what I was thinking you yeah. know no it's really good at some future date in this show we've talked about MIT and we think about MIT and science and data and engineering because there's some of the brightest minds that come out of that yeah. And so I think at some future show, to me, one of the debates rests in where will design and data meet in an eloquent way and not a, on Monday, this conversation really scares me. On Tuesday, I find it inspiring. On Wednesday, I think it's unethical. And on Thursday, it's really, really cool again. <laughs> and so I think predictive analytics, as we use data to figure out how and why something's going to happen, right. is becoming pretty sophisticated, right? Yeah. I, I heard a story recently about crime they were using predictive analytics for domestic violence and they could mm -hmm. tell you on what street corner the next likely domestic violence incident was going to happen based on predictive analytics wow. before it had happened wow and so it's like ooh, this is getting really interesting right and so do you intervene what's it mean and then what's the relationship between if we looked at all the information we'll have we'll have information on the weather your genetic code your thought processes potentially right yeah. and so What's that mean for design thinkers and design thinking where it's far more emotional based, far more intuitive, in a way trying to buck the prediction? It's like, no, actually, I'm going to take the lead here yeah. through my own human spirit, do something that you're not going to be able to predict. Right. So I think the beauty may come in the blend. I yeah. think that's where it's going. Definitely. But, um, well, it's even like the conversation around, is it nature or nurture? Yes. It's like, 
Yeah. And they blend in different ways at different times. And I think, but you and I live in an environment where everyone believes that in lies the answer. Like, data will give us everything. Like, it will give everything. No. Like, <laughs> I know exactly. It won't. People that actually believe the... They really you know, do. With all of their soul, they believe it. That's where the... But it's just like, I mean, with behavioral economics, where people created this whole foundation around economics, thinking that people always act rational. Yes. And then you realize they don't. And yeah. we need to design for that. So it's yeah. like data. People don't just work to the data. They don't yeah. exist to the data. I think the odd ones are like 23andMe, for example. Mm -hmm. So I find it hard to comprehend what you're going to do. If your life were more predictive, given your setup, you've probably got 20 years. Right. You know? Like, wow, you're going to live differently knowing that information. So right. I think the opinion is it can be used for good and evil. Yes. And I hope that the world prevails in using this for good. Amazing instead of awkward and odd and functional. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. Our dream is to build a community of people who can create and take advantage of any opportunity that interests them. To do this really well, your participation is key. So if you want to try out and share back your own life design experiments, or if you've already got a great story of how you've designed your life, we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page or at resultsmayvarypodcast.com. Our website is also where you'll find show notes and links to all the things we mentioned in the podcast. And if you would be so kind, subscribe to the show and rate us and write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That'll let even more people start designing their lives. Special thanks to composer and filmmaker H.P. Mendoza for the results may vary theme music and graphic designer Anessa Bramer for our logo. And of course, thank you so much for listening to... Results may vary!